This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I think this talk is going to be largely a talk about how we might explain to others why they should consider becoming Christians. And that's good because that's the way I conceived of it. And I'm going to share a screen. And this is, and I'm going to work from this as a text. So you should see this document here. It's called Giving Others a Reason to Be a Christian. And I, I write for the, the Catholic thing, which is a really good form for Catholic opinion. It comes out every day. And I think the quality is generally very high. And if you don't subscribe to it already, I would encourage you to subscribe to it. Anyway, I have a column coming out tomorrow. Deadline was 12 noon today. I'm giving this talk in the evening. So I thought I'd write my column on the topic of the talk. So I thought the way I'd give the talk is by walking you through the column and um, explaining what I wrote here. And, and that should take a half an hour. And then we can have questions afterwards because um, you know, in a 1000 word column, which is what I'm allowed, you can't really say very much. You can basically say one thing. All right, so this first paragraph is motivated by the thought that if we want to explain to others why they should become Christians, we should probably give God's answer to that question, rather our own answer. And so it begins, we may speculate whether God would have become incarnate if man had not fallen. But the only reason which scripture suggests is to save us from our sins. So says St. Thomas Aquinas, echoing the fathers of the church. And so says the creed too, with its clause, if you know this from the Nicene Creed, for us men and for our salvation. And, and this formula follows an old Thomistic idea, which St. Thomas gets from Aristotle, which is that to love is to wish good to someone, vela bonum aliqui is the Latin. And, and this is actually a, f a formula that's based on that concept. So there's a good that's wish, wished our salvation, and there are those to whom it's wished, members of the human race. Right. So if you want to explain the love of God for us, which in the ancient world was called philanthropia, the love of the human race. Originally, philanthropy didn't mean uh, wealthy pe people giving money away. It meant God or the gods having care for us for the human race as a whole. If you want to explain that motive of love for the human race, this phrase in the creed does that. So it's the wishing of the good of salvation to us. And so that, that's the reason why I started this essay in this way, because it seems to me that if you want to know why should you become Christian, um, my opinion, frankly, isn't worth um, a whole lot. It's, uh, it's really God's reason why you should become Christian, and that's for salvation from sins. Okay. And, and that's a thought that really I, I'm going to end up meditating on in this essay. So then I say it is salvation from sin, which Christ won after all, and not any other salvation in this life. Um, I think it's worth pointing that out because there are a lot of Christians who have misguided views about what Christianity is. We know, for example, that socialism or communism is a kind of Christian heresy. And it says, you know, forget all this stuff about sin. We want to try to improve the world. 
uh, let's have a revolution right now of the proletariat and redistribute wealth and usher in um, an age of a certain kind of working uh, classless utopia, right? Um, and, and there are various politicizations of Christianity, which, which give up on this idea that sin, sin matters, really. And that, in the end, is joining in with these mockers who, in scripture, were standing there at the foot of the cross and said, he saved others, he cannot save himself. If you really are the son of God, come down from the cross. Imagine you're suffering, you've just been, you've just been scourged and tortured, and you're on the cross, and people stand at the base of the cross and, and mock you in this way, right? And when they said that, when they said he saved others, what they mean is the miracles that he wrought. So it's kind of a strange mockery because it, it actually presupposes that he's capable of, of working miracles, right? So his healings, which save the people from, from disease and exorcisms, which, which are, you know, very much stressed in the New Testament, which saving people from the power of the devil, right? So, you know, I say this is a strange mockery, which causes actually people to be aligned with disease and the devil, kind of challenging Christianity to come up with solutions to these things, right? Or if you're suffering, you probably know somebody I know, some people who are really quite young and suffering right now from fatal illness, and they are, they're Christians. So I suppose we could st stand there at the foot of their bed and, and mock Christianity and said, you know, Jesus saved others. Why doesn't he save you? He's really God, right? Uh, and I want I want to say that if you say if you say that sort of thing and if you think that sort of thing, you're really siding with the the worst enemies of the human race, actually. So, um, you know, at least the um, I think the right way of construing the miracles of the New Testament is that ultimately they're only signs. They're not what Christianity is about. I mean, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. According to scripture, he, he, he smelled because he was in the tomb for whatever, three or four days, right? He came out, he was wrapped in bandages. Jesus said, you know, take the bandages off of him. He probably, you know, give him something to eat. He hasn't eaten in four days. And who knows how much longer he lived. I, I think there's that reason to think he's a relatively young man, but then you know, he died 20, 30 years later. He did not live forever after that raising. It was a great thing, but it ended up being a sign. So, and in fact, that's what the name of Jesus means. Right, so it, Mary, when, when the angel appeared to her, was told that she should call her child Jesus, and Jesus means Savior. So he will save their pe his people from their sins. And then there Pilate is, you know, he puts this plaque on top of the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, in Rye, and he put it there in three different languages, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. And it's as if Pilate, knew better than these mockers what Jesus was dying for. He was dying to save people from their sins. Okay, so this is all to say that, you know, from the creed, which is tradition, from scripture, from the very awe-inspiring death of Jesus, point, you know, again and again and again, it's emphasized that he was incarnate and came to earth and founded a religion, if you will, or church more precisely, to save us from our sins. And so I think we should say, well, that's the reason to become a Christian, to attain salvation from our sins. And we even say this in connection with the Lord's Supper, if, if you're Catholic, poured out for you and for many, 
for the forgiveness of sins so the sins may be forgiven. Do this in memory of me. That's the canon of the Mass and the most the holiest days of the year, which we just lived through, if you're a Catholic. It's uh, in remembering, the remembrance of all these things. Okay, so then I so said, what does this question even mean? Right, consider being a, a Christian. And I'm a Catholic now, but I was an atheist in college. And when I became a Christian, I became a Christian in what's called evangelical Christianity. And the formula which everybody uses there is if you're convinced that you should become a Christian, you invite Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior, or invite Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. And if you do that, and sometimes there's a formula or even kind of a, a ceremony, you might walk to the front of the church and publicly speak out loud that you're inviting Jesus. People say you're saved now. And, you know, this whole question of, well, what is it, what is it to be saved from your sins after all? I, I think in, strictly you're not saved from your sins until after death. And then you're, if you're a Catholic and you think that people go to purgatory, then perhaps you're not really saved entirely from your sins until you've spent some time in purgatory and make it to heaven. So I don't think it's this sort of thing that you say a formula and then you can kind of dance up and down and say, I've been saved from my sins. Yes and no, right? But I, and I believe that one time, I thought that that's what Christianity was. It was a personal relationship with our Lord. And it, it does include that without any question. And maybe that's even the foundation of everything. And, you know, my two latest books have been translations of books of the New Testament, most recently the Gospel of John. It's a book called Mary, Mary's Voice in the Gospel of, according to John. And I, I do these translations because I, I read Greek and I read the New Testament Greek, but I, I passionately want people to know Jesus better and to develop a friendship with Jesus and to have that personal relationship, which I've had since I became a Christian, since I was an evangelical Christian. And that is in a certain sense, the essence and the core of everything. There's no denying that. But I want to say though, that if, you, if now, 2000 years after Jesus' death, you propose to somebody, you know, do you want to become a Christian? That's no longer just welcoming Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. There's kind of a whole lot of stuff that goes along with Christianity now after two, cent, two millennia. I'd say Christianity is a big deal after two millennia. There's nothing mere about it anyway. This is a kind of allusion to C.S. Lewis. He wrote a wonderful book, Mere Christianity, trying to find the core of it, the essence of it, it's a deeply flawed book as much as I love it. It was deeply important to me when I became a Christian because it doesn't discuss the church. And you might even say the most important thing that Jesus did when he came to earth was to found a church. And there wasn't even scripture when he died, but there was a church. So you know, the apostles are his continuing the kind of the, the leadership and the bishops, the successor of the, of the apostles continue the leadership of this society, so to speak that he started. So you know, he has a parable, the mustard seed, and he says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it grows up, it grows into a great tree where the birds of the air can make their nests. And, and that's happened, right? We're not dealing with a mustard seed anymore. Christianity is not a mustard seed. After 2000 years, it's a great tree. And John Henry Newman wrote a great, uh, a great treatise 
explaining this. It's called develop, uh, an essay on the development of Christian doctrine. And he points out that many of the parables of Jesus are developmental. So you wouldn't really expect Christianity 2,000 years later to look exactly like Christianity when it was founded. It has to develop. When I say it always was a faith meant to engage every aspect of our being, heart, soul, strength, and mind, this is an allusion to the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole strength, and your whole mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, something that I like to do when I write is I like to take something that was that's familiar from an older context and throw it, throw it into a new context. So now we all know, I think, that we're supposed to love God with heart, soul, strength, and mind, but now think about Christianity as something that's somehow supposed to match or correspond to the love of God, and then therefore it has to have these four things and it has to be such that it 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 answers to these four things and by the way mind was jesus innovation i mean you know he's quoting the old testament and in leviticus it says your whole heart your whole strength soul your whole strength and then he adds mind right and that's very greek actually right so he probably spoke greek and the gospels, of course, were written in Greek and Greek was the lingua franca. It was the standard language of the time and the culture was, was Greek culture and philosophy is very important in Greek culture. So there's, there's definitely, or Jesus definitely has in mind Greek culture, I think in adding this word mind. So I say by now, Christianity has become such a thing in the world, a Catholic thing. In fact, this, that's the name of this, this blog, if you will, that that's, I'm published in and Bob Royal founded and he loves this, this idiom. So I wanted to please him and throw that in there. Encompassing all of these things, you know, race catholica, you know, it's like, what do we call a commonwealth? It's a race publica, it's a public thing, right? So, and you know, race publica has objective reality. The United States has objective reality. You know, Poland has objective reality. Catholic um, church has objective reality. It's a Catholic thing, race catholica, encompassing all of these. So it has a doctrinal system of profound truths. Take that to answer to the mind. It has a sacramental system which provides mysterious spiritual nourishment. And I take that to answer to the, the soul. And I use mysterious in the technical sense of something that we can't fully comprehend. And it works in ways that we really don't understand and, and a certain kind of obedience is necessary and for it to, to be, have power. A system of wise and reli reliable and wise ethical teaching I'll take that to answer to the heart. And a system two, and I add this little parenthetical phrase because people don't like to think of prayer as having a system, yet you know after 2,000 years there have been a lot of masters of the interior life, masters of prayer, masters of asceticism, masters of suffering even. And I think that answers to strength, right? Because suffering, um, passion, is the from the latin word passio which means being receptive of an action and the body is that through which we're mostly passive or most of our passivity even the so-called passions the emotions are bodily reactions to to perceptions and judgments that we have 
uh, an excitement of the body, an arousal of the body, uh, a recoiling of the body. Uh, and body amusing in the broad sense, you know, include all of the, you know, the fight or flight systems and, the, and so on, not just you know, limbs. That's not what I'm talking about. So, yeah, we're supposed to want to be co-redeemers, to join our own suffering with that of the Lord and participate in this salvation of the world. So that friend of mine who has um, this, this mortal illness, who's a Christian, is now dedicating herself to identification with Jesus and his sufferings to play her part in some mysterious way. Okay, you know, and maybe she read the Summa of St. Thomas and, and maybe she um, you know, receives communion regularly and reflects on it. Maybe she has studied carefully the Catholic social teaching and so on. And, and that's, that's a big package. That's not just inviting our Lord into my heart as, as Lord and Savior, which is, which is wonderful. That's not what it is to, to become a Christian. That's not the whole reality. That's not the Catholic thing. Now, that being said, I added some other side comments, not in the column, but I think it's important to say what's not included in Christianity. So Christianity embraces every genuine human good except for sin, right? So whatever anyone else can do or should do or wants to do, Christians can do that no restrictions on way of dress. You don't have to wear long skirts and, and, and dress. You can dress very edgy. You can be very fashionable. You could, I suppose, you, know, you could put lots of pins through your ear if you want. Um, I personally would recommend against tattoos, but um, you should be modest in your dress. Uh, no limitations on technology except immoral uses or technology insofar as it dominates or distracts. Right, which which smartphones do, for example, but otherwise, you know, here's here's my smartphone. Um, limitations on knowledge, none, except to avoid vanity, pride, aggrandizement. I suppose we could say Faustian temptations. Limitations on culture, high or low. I like high culture. You'll see that in a minute, right? But you know, if you want to listen to Britney Spears. Uh, which I sometimes do when I'm exercising, um, go ahead, right? In, in, except insofar as it leads to some kind of wrong temptations, I guess. Restrictions on type of business or career. Yeah, I know Britney Spears is really out of fashion now, so I, I, I don't even know who the fashionable low culture singers are. Jay-Z, is that somebody? Limitations on place of residence city or country, okay. You guys are out there in the country, but you don't have to live in the country. Political party or policies, you can be a Democrat, you can be a Republican, except insofar as immoral. So a lot of things which many people confuse with Christianity and want to make normative for Christians are, are not normative. You can smoke. I, I think there's such a thing as smoking in moderation. Like you can smoke, you know, a cigar every, I think we can all grant if you smoke a cigar once a year, that's not gonna damage your health. 
Um, there's some people who think no matter how no matter how small the amount of tobacco you take, you're you're doing damage to your body. I, I don't think that that's true. I think that's not likely to be true. Yes, there is what's called the preparatio fidei, preparation of faith. You you probably can't approach Christianity unless you if you don't have some kind of intuitive sense of the highest deity. However vague, you know, the Romans used to call this the numum supremum, supremum, the highest divine power up there. Uh, when I was in, even when I was an atheist, I, I still kind of fearfully thought there was a numum supremum. Some kind of belief in a moral law, because I don't really think you get guilt in a sense of sin. That's why C.S. Lewis starts Mere Christianity by talking about the reality and objectivity of the moral law. Some kind of conviction of the reliability of the New Testament, probably. Like you can't think that it's a book of myths. You'd have to learn enough about it to say, well, wait a second. This is at least presenting itself to us as eyewitness testimony. Can that be sustained? So now I, I, I want to fill this out. Right. So if you're saying to somebody, you're proposing to somebody, well, should you become a Christian? And I say, well, this Catholic thing presents us here and now with a life full of truth, beauty, and goodness. We can sense the scope of this Catholicism, this wholeness, that's what Catholicism means, as refracted through so many saints, luminaries, and works. It's not possible today, today to decide for or against Christianity without deciding for or against Newman, Charles Peggy, Dante, his divine comedy, Copernicus, the Polish astronomer, Boethius, Christmas, everybody loves Christmas, birthdays, which weren't celebrated in the non-Christian world, the Milan Cathedral, Saint Therese of Lisieux, G.K. Chesterton, Mendel, the monk, developed the basic laws of genetic inheritance. Leonardo, Elgar, the great composer, his dream of, dream of Garantius, the Summa, Pi Beauty, Jared Manley Hopkins, Flannery O'Connor, Georg Cantor, founder of modern set theory, deeply religious man who pondered the nature of the infinite in relationship to transfinite numbers. Allegri's Miserere, Silent Night. Here you go, high culture, low culture. St. Francis, the Sistine Chapel, the Pietà. I mean, who doesn't love the Pietà? The beautiful church down the street, if you're so fortunate, Thomas Akempis. Not to mention the abolition of slavery, the concept of natural rights, universities and hospitals, courtship, chaste love, esteem for mothers and households, esteem for childhood, and a free society on principle, to give a quirky and parochial list, but you get the point. That's the difference Christianity has made, or it's just pointing to it, right? That list could be 10 times longer, not without much difficulty. So it makes eminent sense then to say to a young person, you were created to embrace all of truth, beauty and goodness. Can you find some other way of beginning to do so with gusto now with your whole being? And I don't think there is one. It's not in Islam, it's not in Hinduism, it's not in Buddhism, it's not in Zen, it's not in atheism. 
every Catholic college, I say, should present this arguments to its students. Every Catholic household should present this argument to the children. Right. Now, I would suppose the University of West Virginia isn't necessarily conveying these kinds of riches in your courses. So, you know, you need to get a list like this from some kindly Dominican father, get a copy of the Catholic thing tomorrow and become more familiar with this. Now, I wanna pause here and say that what I almost wrote the column on and ended up not, and you start writing it and it goes in a certain direction. You find you don't have enough words to do more than one thing is contrast the way the argument for Christianity uh, would be made now in the way that I've just explained by appealing to the Catholic thing. You know, when I became a, a Christian in college, somebody said to me, well, uh, I understand you want to become religious. Why you became a Christian? Why don't you become a Buddhist? Why don't you become a Hindu? And to me, it was obvious, but uh, things that are obvious, we can't, don't explain all that well. Like I know a brilliant Polish logician who would lecture uh, by giving long proofs on the board and say, first you have this, and then 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 you have this. Right? And that's how he would explain it. And he just couldn't explain it because every step was obvious to him. Uh, so he's a terrible teacher because he was so brilliant. And that's the way he explained every proof whatsoever, right? And, and it was obvious to me. So I, you know, I was, you know, I was at Harvard College. I'd read a lot of these things. Well, actually, it's kind of I knew that they existed, and I wasn't being taught any of these things. And I knew that Bertrand Russell wasn't quite on the same level as you know, Boethius, although Bertrand Russell is quite a brilliant man, without any question, right? Well, Bertrand Russell probably can be counted as part of Christian civilization in the sense that there are many things he believed that he wouldn't have believed if he were raised in a coarse post-Christian society. So I, I knew that these things existed and that's, I wanted to be part of that, that culture, that tradition. That's why Christianity can look like it's traditional. Uh, it's not conservative because it, we conserve what already exists. If, you might want to say it's restorative, it's reactionary, I guess. I mean, it's, these things are not exactly widely treasured in our society. It's the sense that, look at our architecture, look at our paintings. Um, it's not being practiced. Uh, since that, what well, was better? It was better when, uh, you know, Bach was composing a new oratorio every week, and that was popular music rather than John Adams's minimalism. But there's another way you can get at this. And you know, before Christianity developed, back when it was closer to a mustard seed, you know, nations would convert, and thousands and thousands of people would convert based on preaching. And I'm convinced that they did so on this basis of salvation from sin. Because it is a mark of pagan cultures that they're much more sensitive to sin than we are. They're having regular sacrifices, sometimes human sacrifices propitiate the gods, they have regular purifications, they believe in pollutions of various sorts, they believe in 
in devils, devil-like creatures which haunt us and you know, like, um, and the harpies and things like that, right? And, and their world is dark, right? Um, so um, that, that sin that we're, we're enmeshed in evil powers and captured by sin is not really very hard for them to grasp. And what one sees in Christianity is an optimization of the concept of salvation, which is common and is common in pagan um, um, cultures. So you look back at the Greek and Roman words for salvation. And it originally, these terms arose originally, it seems, I mean, if you go to a good lexicon, from maritime uses. That would being at sea would be the way in which people would typically be in a situation of great peril, where they seem to be subject to forces that were beyond their power, like some storm at sea, and you cannot extract yourself from this. So you pray, and you ask a higher being to intervene and save you, right? and because you can't, and no human power can stop a storm at sea. And, this, and the God does, you believe, through some kind of definitive act. And then he brings you to safety. Port would be safety for these men at sea. Right, so Zeus Soter is one of the earliest names of a saving God. Now Christianity, so you have four elements. You have peril, which is beyond human limits. You have appeal to a higher being, you have intervention through a definitive act, and you have coming home safely. Right. And what you find if you just think of the concept of Christianity is that all of those are maximized. So you have maximum peril, sin, separation from good and being eternally, or at least the threat of that. You have the max, the supreme, the numum supremum, you have the highest being who's being, who's appealing, being appealed to. You have a maximal intervention, which is incarnation. It's not the being sending an, an instrument or messenger, but the being himself intervenes and does so by joining you in your peril and then bringing you to a maximum condition of safety, which is the safety that the eternal, the highest being enjoys. So, and I think that this, is, this was seen, this was seen by cultures and people in cultures where they believed that they were caught in traps of sin and evil and death. And they recognized that Christianity was the preaching of a message of a kind of idealization of the concept of salvation. And they sensed that if the creation was good or there's anything good at all to this show, there was the possibility that a cause of that good would come to the rescue, right? And this also answers the question, well, you know, why not Islam? Islam has none of this. Buddhism has none of this. Hinduism has none of this. There's only one religion which presents this maximization of the concept of salvation. And that's also obvious. Like this is not something we have to kind of pour through volumes of books in the library to see. It's just on its face. It's as much on, you know, it's on its face as, as the crucifix is, right? So I have this on my desk. And, you know, that's from Dachau, by the way. It was made by nuns in Dachau. And 
Um, that's pretty obvious right away. Tells you what it is. Oh, I, I don't know if you saw that because I'm sharing my screen. All right, so let's not fail to insist that this Catholic thing would not exist at all, except that Jesus came to save us from a sin. So I don't, I don't think we should lose sight of that, you know, if we think about Christian civilization, right? And Christian civilization superposes three dimensions at once. Man is created, man is fallen, man is redeemed. Its fullness presupposes and does not hide sin. Everything great comprehends all three, I think, right? You know, even plots today, like the basic plot today, is things start out good, they get messed up in some way, and they get redeemed in some way at the end, right? That's that whole story, that narrative is creation, fall, redemption. It's like every, it's you can't avoid these three aspects. And then I say, even even then, I suspect this this argument's power, not not this uh, indented blue argument, but my original argument. Its power will depend upon a hearer's personal felt sense of sin. It's not merely an aesthetic argument. I mean, you could say, oh, well, look at, you know, Christian culture is so much nicer than, than pagan culture. Um, and it is. I mean, that was one of the things, for example, Michelangelo thought he had to prove. Right? And, and the Pieta is superior to any statue made in Greece and Rome by a long shot. Right. And so is the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Um, it's kind of like, well, we knew it could be done. And finally somebody did it. And, but that's not the argument for Christianity. It's, it's that it has to have some kind of personal grip on you. And, and, I wanna, and I wanna exp I'll explain that grip. And then this talk should come to an end. Maybe I'll just read for a while. We cannot sense sin without reflection and introspection indeed. All right, so I just wanna make that point, right? Um, you know, we're distracted. If, if you're constantly looking at TikTok, TikTok videos, I really doubt you're ever going to come up with any idea of your possible state of sin. And that's probably the design of, you know, whatever diabolical power came up with, you know, implanted in the, in the mind of a human being, this idea of TikTok videos. And sin is felt here through mainly, I think, a sense of lost youth. All right. So I want you to think about your own youthfulness and what it is, what it is to be young. What's the essence of youthfulness? So what is youthfulness after all, except a sense of life as a great gift? So I propose, well, look at the diary of Anne Frank. So if you don't know this book, the movie is good, but I would say get the diary itself and read it. And why is that so deeply beautiful? Why is that so painfully beautiful? And it has to do with the specific appeal of that author's personality as a young girl. Right? And that almost doesn't exist today. It's like youth has been destroyed. Right? And that's also demonic. So, you, but usefulness, right, when it's protected and extended, it senses that also there should not be death. We know intellectually that everyone dies, but very few of us preserve beyond youth the sense of the heart that we are not meant to die. Now, that's a very strange thing to say, right? Because everybody does die and all animals die. So, um, 
except apparently some immortalized cell lines, which I won't get into now, but that's a bit, a bit of a topic I've gotten caught into in, in recently. To say that's the mark of youthfulness, sense of life as a gift with tremendous and indeed infinite potential because it's not meant to come to an end. So what I'm maintaining is that that choice for fullness of life is not simply an embrace of the good, but also a plea for salvation from bad. It is the expression of a plea by someone entering perhaps into adulthood who sees within himself that through narrow ambition, bad choices, bad friends, and bad habits, he no longer is that person he was as a child. He has lost his life, the life that was given to him. That life needs to be saved. To become a Christian for him is his only chance to recover life as he once knew it, a gift holding the promise of, of being everlasting. And this points to a reason why, you know, as a father, I like to stress to parents that they should try to they should strive to make their household a place where their children have great memories and they love childhood and they love their child because Plato was right that becoming a good human being and seeking salvation in the way I've described is a matter of wanting to reclaim what you were like as a child. And I say, well, you know, there's certainly some people have the job of standing on the street corner and becoming irksome, I say, if necessary, by proclaiming publicly the need of others to repent of sins, right? And I think that you know, that's what the collar, in a certain sense, shows. I mean, the religious habit is pointing to, it contradicts the world of sin, so to speak. And, and our clerics are not really doing this. I mean, a sign of this is that recently the Vatican re released this statement that it was not proper to bless same-sex unions uh, because it, these had sin in them, and that was that shocked lots of people. And so I say, well, apparently it's so shocking today to anyone to speak out against sin that simply to say you're not going to bless sin is very scandalous to a lot of people. Now, at some point in this talk, I'd, I'd love, and I won't, to talk about um, sin more directly, because there certainly are people who become Christian and seek Christianity because of knowledge and acquaintance with sin and serious sin in a direct sense. And, you know, I was thinking about this in my own case. You know, I, I lived a relatively sheltered life growing up on, in a, on a Long Island suburb. By the time I was 20 years old, in fact, for most of these 16 years old, I personally knew a friend who was gang raped, a friend who committed adultery with a married woman, a friend who, when he was drunk, almost killed a girl driving, people who are addicted in various serious ways, drunkenness, sex addiction, people who live their lives through betraying others in a series of betrayals. Of course, so many people today know the sin of divorce, of infidelity, of abandonment, of cruelty. Involvement with the, the occult and demonic forces. Right, so I suspect, and you probably don't, maybe you don't want to call it to mind, but you probably know things like this. Right, and, and we can just, I suppose, blithely go through life and say that doesn't touch me, but it does touch me. Um, 
then there's the sins, gross sins of humanity, like the genocides of the 20th century, you know, the Ukrainian famine, the artificial famine of Stalin, the, the, the Holocaust. When I was a child, I, I, lo I, I loved reading books about the Holocaust because I found them evil so shocking. It braced me to, to assert that there really had to be a good because how can there be evil in contrast unless there's a good? But if we take credit for the achievements of humankind, don't we get blame for the sins? I mean, am I not, in some sense, the same beings that planned the concentration camps and that enslaved blacks and profited from their labor? I'm not a different kind of thing from those people. I'm the same kind of thing. So of these things, these gross things happen, such that I had a professor, Nozick, who said that after the Holocaust, he believed that it didn't make any difference any longer if the human race continued to exist. It was such a blight on the common heritage of the human race that we could just all go out of existence as far as he was concerned, right? Well, that may be extreme or it's a typical Nozick type position, which is, you know, provocative and so on, but there's something right about that, right? That, uh, you know, these sins you know, say something about me, not just, you know, some stereotype Nazi and Hitler and so on. And then the fruits of sin, which are all around us. And we probably like the loss of free will, loss of joy. What about this sense that inevitably we're going to harm others simply through thoughtlessness? Like, we, like we're, we're living in a way that we just can't even tr keep track of all the harm we're doing to others. We, you know, we discover we harm them after the fact without even realizing it. Domination by bad emotions. All right, and then I conclude with an upbeat way because I'm just sick and tired, as I'm sure you are, of all kinds of people self-righteously, virtuous signaling and pointing out all the flaws in everybody else. So I, the, the upshot here is that if, if my approach is right, that um, for most people, becoming a Christian is a matter of opting for um, belonging to this Catholic thing, then the chief way, and this is for the Christians here who are listening to the chief way for a Christian layperson to witness to sin and therefore to hold out the message of salvation would be not by standing on a street corner and talking about you know gang rape and the Holocaust and so on, but it would be um, through an upright life marked by optimism and youthfulness. Right? So live it. And then it's always good when you write a piece to have some kind of closing line that clinches it, that, that's, that's, that's neat, that's kind of unexpected. And here, in other words, live a life as someone who has himself, I should have added himself here, because that would strengthen my claim, himself passed through that night, which restores lost innocence and gives mourners joy. That is an allusion to the exalted. That's the, the song, which is sung by Cantor on the, in the Easter Vigil Mass. You know, this is the night which restores lost innocence and gives mourners joy. I, I thought that these two phrases, this pointed to youth and this pointed to overcoming sin and death. So I thought that was a very nice way of closing the, my reflection. Okay, so that's my, that's my talk. And with all of the digressions and so on, it ended up being more than 20 minutes. We do have time. I, I, I have no limits. I, you know, we're going to go over some friend's house and, and have some wine later tonight, but I have no great commitments I need to rush off to.